0: Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. I'm Kate Elliott and on today's show we're broadcasting a talk that was originally presented at this year's Irish Vegan Festival. The talk was by Sandra Higgins, a psychologist who is also the founder and director of Eden Farmed Animal Sanctuaries and she's also the woman behind the largest animal rights ad campaign, Go Vegan World. So this is her talk and it was titled, What Other Animals Need From Us.
1: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sandra Higgins. I'm a psychologist and I work in private practice in the south of Ireland. I'm a psychologist and I work in private practice in the south of Ireland. I work with a range of clinical issues and human behaviour change. So I'll be talking to you about some of the the factors that affect our our behaviour today. In 2008 I set up Eden Farmed Animal Sanctuary, it was the first vegan sanctuary in Ireland and I also run Go Vegan World, a vegan education campaign that you might see live in Northern Ireland at the moment. I am going to speak to you today about what other animals need from us, both in terms of my clinical experience of working with human relationships and behavioural change and in terms of the animals that I work with and live with at Eden who represent the billions of animals that we breed and kill every year. Since I opened the sanctuary in 2008, I've been privileged to witness the character and personality, as well as the complexity, sophistication and courage of the individuals who've lived there. They arrive as traumatised victims of human use, often in their early childhoods, some of them newly born. Despite their terrible histories, they have the courage to trust and heal and thrive. All my work is inspired and informed by them. I know them intimately, and I think I can speak confidently on their behalf about what they need from the human world. And I think I can speak about what they need from you, from every individual in this room today. If you're already vegan, I hope that I'll say something that might inspire you and give you courage to be the best possible activist that you can be, not just for yourself or for the salary you're paid for your activism or for any personal motives or psychological payoff that you get for your activism. I think it's very important that we distinguish these aspects of ourselves from the work that we do for them, and that we continually ask ourselves if if what we're doing matches what they need from us. If you're not vegan, I hope that this talk will inspire you to research these issues for yourself. They're facts. It's your right to know. Getting to know rescued farmed animals as individuals has had a profound effect on my life. It has radically altered how I live and think and feel about the world we live in. Before I met them, I never thought about them. I didn't know who they were, and I didn't see or hear them. I distinctly recall the first time I really saw one of them, when Matilda, one of the hens at Eden, spotted me in the distance, and she turned and left her group of hens and came half running, half flying across the sanctuary to me, and I found myself looking back at a person. Not something, but someone. I got to know her very well because she chose to spend a lot of her time with us. She was intelligent, gregarious and capable. She loved to spend time perched on our kitchen table or on one of the chairs beside me as I worked. She knew where the sunflower seeds and the bread were kept and she'd repeatedly hit the drawer with her beak until I gave her some. She was extremely sociable and it was very obvious that her life had purpose and meaning to her, independent of how I related to her. That first day when she ran to me, I suddenly stopped categorizing her as a chicken or a hen or a member of a species. In essence, I stopped seeing something and I saw someone who had all the qualities that characterise the people I know. Agency, a will of her own, preferences, consciousness, an appreciation for her life, sophistication, sophisticated social interaction and emotional feelings. I stopped seeing her as someone who laid eggs or someone defined by her breasts or her legs or the body parts that related to human use and I certainly no longer saw her as food and I didn't relate to her as a victim that I had rescued. She became my companion and my teacher. The night she died... I promised her that I would devote the rest of my life to telling the world what she had taught me about who other animals are. I named Eden's Animal Rights and Vegan Education Centre Matilda's promise in her memory. Go Vegan World is just one of its activities. This is what they need from us. They need this recognition that Matilda got for the individuals that they are. They need us to empathize with them so that when we mentally swap places with them we can glimpse what they experience at our hands and realize the injustice of it. They need us to radically alter how we think and feel about them. They need us to stop believing and living as though we are superior to them and to stop believing that it's acceptable to breed, exploit and kill them because they're not one of us. They need us to be vegan But they need more than that. They need us to lose our speciesism. When I went vegan, none of the consumer goods that you see here today were on the market. Some supermarkets had soya milk. Nut milk was so rare that it cost 5 euros in the health shop. You don't need these products to be vegan. Of course they make life very convenient and it's wonderful that there's such a range of products now. But you don't need them because being vegan is not really about you. It's about your place on this planet in relation to other life. It's about how you feel and how you think. It's not a fad or a commodity that can be bought or sold. It's a non-violent way of living that results because of the deep shock of facing a very dark side of our history and our human nature and taking responsibility for ceasing to participate in it. I'll begin by telling you today what I've learned about animal sentience. I'll address the problem of of what other animals face, and what they face is not a problem of cruelty. It's a problem of animal use, and it stems from our speciesism. I'll address how nothing quite addresses that problem in the way that vegan education does. It's not my policy to illustrate animal cruelty. After all, all of us are opposed to it, including farmers. I'll not show footage of any breaches in welfare legislation. What I will show you is standard legal practice, what takes place in the life of every animal that we use when we make non-vegan choices. By doing so, please remember that you can't take refuge in thinking that purchasing flesh from so-called happy animals or humane eggs and dairy means that you're doing something that helps them because nothing helps them until we're vegan. I'll explain how a compromised notion of veganism falls very far short from what they need from us and I'll do so by critically examining terms like vegetarianism, reducitarianism and flexitarianism. I'll focus in some detail on the victims of vegetarianism in two of the most prevalent yet hidden forms of exploitation, the egg and dairy industries. I'll discuss how empathy and a sense of social justice are the key to answering that how do I go vegan question. And I'll follow my talk with a question and answer session and I'll look forward to hearing your thoughts and your queries. I'll use the Go Vegan World campaign to illustrate my talk about what other animals like Matilda and the other residents of Eden need from us. The campaign ads reflect my thoughts, feelings and beliefs as I moved from being a speciesist to being vegan. Although I will qualify that and say that speciesism is so entrenched that it's something that I'm still working on every day. So the ads are components of the processes that I went through and that we all go through in order to become ethical vegans, and in showing the public these processes that we all go through, my hope is that they will also have the information they need to make an informed choice. Go Vegan World began as a very small project in Ireland just over a year and a half ago. It has grown into the largest and longest running outdoor animal rights campaign in the world. Many of the ads feature the residents of Eden They're not without character and they're not anonymous. They are real beings who live and die at Eden. Their names are on the ads and I discuss their history and personality as part of the campaign. The fact that the campaign is rooted in these real lives is what has made it unique and what has provoked a reaction from the industry that's unprecedented in vegan education campaigning. The reaction is strong because there's no defence left when a campaign is addressing the truth. The campaign shows that our legal, our ethical obligation to other animals is not simply a theoretical aspiration. It stems from the very real harm that named individuals experience when we're not vegan. And it addresses the problem that they face at our hands, which is speciesism. This is the roots of the problem, how we think and feel about them. Other people see these individuals juxtaposed alongside messages that show the injustice of the harm we inflict on them. And they can no longer take refuge in something like vegetarianism. They can't take refuge in reducitarianism. And they can't take refuge in welfareism. Going vegetarian, reducing our use of other animals or treating them a little better while they're alive does not address the problem That these animals in the ads show us. Their problem is that we think it's acceptable to use them because they're not one of us. Nothing addresses this problem except a change in our hearts and in our minds and a concomitant change in our behaviour. That is veganism. Like every other important aspect of human life, veganism is a combination of thoughts, feelings, belief, and behaviour. It's an awful lot more than a diet or a fad. We have always spoken for other animals. This time, through Go Vegan World, the animals themselves have gone out onto the streets and demanded their rights, showing themselves to the public in a light that directly contrasts with the ways in which they're traditionally represented. We like to think of ourselves as decent people, living ordinary lives that are of of little consequence to anyone else. Each day, every one of us gets out of bed, we shower and get dressed, we go to work, eat and socialise with no idea that we're inflicting harm on anyone. We think we love other animals and we never consciously think about the fact that that shower gel, shampoo and body lotion might contain the remnants of the slaughterhouse or that the cosmetics we use to adorn ourselves or the chemicals we use to clean our houses were force-fed in toxic doses to other animals who are no different from the ones we claim to love to make sure that they're safe for us. We rarely think that the clothes and shoes that we dress in were once the skin, wool or hair of someone who wanted to stay alive. Most of us believe it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering or harm on others, and most of us value life. If we came face to face with them, none of us could fail to be moved by their terror at the end of their lives. Who among us would demand this for a woollen jumper or a piece of flesh when we could so easily use a plant-based alternative? We don't let ourselves think that the food on our plates was once a feeling being, just like the cats and dogs who live with us, who we claim to care about. In fact, we abhor the practice in some countries of eating cats and dogs, and yet the pigs, chickens, goats, cows and sheep that we harm feel the very same as those cats and dogs that we love. We don't connect with who the animals were. Before they became the dismembered body parts and secretions that we call leather, dairy, and eggs. So, you see, the ordinary things that we take for granted every day the food we eat and the clothes and cosmetics we wear have a history that stretches all the way back to someone with feelings. Someone with a mother and a son. Someone who valued their life. Someone who didn't want to be used or harmed. Someone who didn't want to die. Someone who, if we met them face to face, we would never choose to harm. Harming someone defenceless and innocent is anathema to who most of us are. It goes against all the values that we claim to hold dear, like justice, compassion and fairness. And it's particularly unjust because there isn't a single ingredient in their lives or bodies that we need for our well-being. The greatest problem on earth today is the notion that some lives matter less than others. We imagine that non-human lives hardly matter at all. We live as though our difference from others entitles us to use them and that they exist for our benefit. This view is not only inaccurate, it's unethical. It's a perspective of others that defines them according to their utility to us, so that they lose their individuality and their own purpose in this life. It's a view that objectifies them, and in doing so, it allows and normalises the worst of human cruelty to be inflicted on the greatest number of defenceless beings for the most trivial of reasons. The notion that one life matters more than another life, especially the notion that a life is more valuable because its bearer is human, is speciesism, and it's causing the greatest tragedy this earth has ever witnessed. It is one that everyone needs to know about so that we can cease our personal participation in it. Behavioural change requires effort and inconvenience. It's very difficult to change how we live unless we're strongly motivated and have firmly established goals. So, if you're thinking about going vegan, everywhere you look you'll find vegan recipes and posts on social media about food or the latest vegan friendly product to hit the shelves. But replacing animal use with plant alternatives, it It certainly involves learning how to read labels and and to cook and to live in ways that are different from your life as a non-vegan. But learning which toothpaste and deodorant are vegan or vegan-friendly is one of the final stages of behavioural change. There are much more important changes that need to come first so that we understand the rationale for veganism and firmly establish the goal of living non-violently. Without this grounding... There's no motivation for veganism, and the final stages of living vegan and staying vegan will never happen. This is why people flounder. This is why they think that veganism is difficult. This is why so many people who call themselves vegan are not. They may eat a plant diet, or they might try a vegan recipe here and there, but that's not veganism. Being vegan means that we have full conscious awareness of the injustice of using other animals, and armed with the horror of the consequences of our actions, we make changes to our behaviour. Other animals need us to understand far more than they need us to become avid readers of vegan recipes. You wouldn't make any other radical change in your life without knowing why you were making it. This is no different. The best way that we can help them is to think about them, to empathise with them and to judge whether you would be willing to swap places with the animal who was harmed for the product you're about to buy or consume. To remind yourself of the terrible violence that you inflict every time you hand over your money to someone else to kill on your behalf. Every time I meet a traumatised resident as they arrive at Eden, Every time I witness the richness of non-human life. Every time I fall in love with one of them and then hold their dying bodies as they struggle to hold on to their one and only precious life. I'm convinced of the need to expand the ethical backbone of the animal rights movement. I'm convinced that we need more ethical vegans who are animal focused and who go out there and talk about this for the tragedy it is educating people about social justice and stop pretending that veganism is difficult or that it's just one more humanocentric, trendy fad. That's why I won't speak to you today about anything less than what the animals need from you. To do otherwise would be to underestimate you as a fair, empathic and just person. Vegans do not use other animals we do not view them as our property. We don't view them as ingredients or tools or commodities. Being vegan means that we do not believe we're superior to them. We respect them as our equals and we come to think about them and feel about them in radically different ways to the ways that we inherited in our species' as culture. Veganism has its origins in the philosophy of ahimsa or dynamic harmlessness. And which of us is not in favour of non-violence. We all claim to prefer peace and violence, and veganism is essentially part of the peace movement. The word was coined in 1944 by Donald Watson and a group of non-dairy vegetarians. The lifestyle was proposed in protest to the harm caused by animal use that was not addressed by vegetarianism, particularly eggs, dairy, and other forms of animal use. The word was defined as a philosophy and way of living that seeks to exclude exploitation and violence. The originators of veganism went vegan during the war. They struggled to have their right to non-animal fat and protein recognised. They didn't have the convenience foods that we have now, they lived during rationing. Many of them worried that their health would suffer because they didn't have the knowledge that we have today on the benefits of plant diets. They went vegan because they wanted to stop harming others. They recognised that every form of animal use involves exploitation. Even the most apparently benign forms of animal use exploit others. While we might rescue and live with companion animals, we recognise that at best their lives are completely under our control. We control where they live, what they eat, how they socialise, who they meet, their veterinary care, how much exercise they get, and how they die. We breed domesticated animals who have been selectively created by us for our benefit in ways that harm them. We deprive them of the opportunity to be who they are, who they were, before we domesticated them. The only way to stop participating in this exploitation is to completely stop using them. There's a plant alternative for every animal use, from the food we eat to the clothing and cosmetics we use to medicines and medical research, many of them on display here today. Vegans avoid the products and practices that harm other animals, not because they are like us, not because we've underestimated their intelligence, but because they feel. Vegans take account of scientific fact and common sense that shows us that other animals think and feel, that they have lives that matter to them, that they are unique individuals in ways that are comparable to our human lives. A non-vegan might see a bird or a hen in this photo. A vegan will see someone. They might not know that her name is Genevieve. They might not know at first glance that she's nine years old or that she has retained most of her wild instincts, that she can fly that she spends most of her nights sleeping in a tree. But they will be aware that she has a history, a biography, and a life that's as valuable to her as our lives are to us. They'll recognise that she's not our property, and they'll live in ways that don't harm her or anyone like her, because if even one of them is harmed by us, it's one too many. It's because they feel that we are obliged to respect them and we only begin to do this by being vegan every one of us in this room wants to avoid harm and suffering we all want to live our lives so that they have some purpose and meaning as well as some some sense of peace and some happy pleasurable experiences but humans don't have a monopoly on these universal needs other animals have them too and it's because we share a common neuropsychological makeup That enables them to feel like us they have sense organs they have two eyes two ears a nose and a mouth they have major organs like hearts kidneys livers and sensory organs like skin they perceive the world through the same senses as us they see hear smell taste and touch and these senses enable them to interact with the world their senses feed information from the world to their brains where they interpret and make sense of it. Like us, they are individuals with preferences to do what they like or dislike. Like us, they experience emotions like joy, sadness, frustration and excitement. And like us, when they are physically harmed, their sensory nerves send signals to their spinal cords and brains that manifest in the physical feeling of pain. In 2012, an international group of scientists signed the Declaration on Consciousness. It stated that other animals are at least as conscious as humans and that humans are not unique in possessing the neurological substrates that generate consciousness and emotions. Non-human animals, including all mammals and birds and many other creatures, including octopuses, also possess these neurological substrates. Every child understands this. Every child knows the difference between a real animal and a stuffed toy. This information has been known in the scientific community for a long time. Veterinary care is built around its acceptance. A large pharmaceutical industry is built on its acceptance. The whole vivisection industry is built on its acceptance. That's why scientists are still replicating Harry Harlow's experiments by rearing primates without their mothers so that we can assess the reaction of a vulnerable child to deliberately inflicted terror in an effort to understand human suffering. And as a psychologist, I hang my head in shame because if we had listened to our clients, we would never have needed to do this to other sentient beings. The scientists who torment and accept the animals they work with also accept this fact. They accept that they have conscious awareness of their own lives. That's why they can inflict pain in order to assess the response to painkillers. The reason the declaration was made was with the intention of bringing this information that we already knew in the scientific community into the public domain. Most people do not think about animal sentience. I didn't. Many imagine that animals have less capacity to feel than humans. Many believe that they do not feel at all. And of course, there's a significant percentage who don't care. In 2010, the Journal of Dairy Science published the results of a study that assessed Norwegian dairy farmers' attitudes towards and empathy with farmed animals. They showed them photographs of conditions that are associated with pain in cows and they asked them to assess the extent to which those conditions might cause pain and suffering. 30% of the farmers assessed did not believe that cows feel pain just as humans do or that conditions such as bone fracture, joint injuries, arthritis, labour difficulties, mastitis and pneumonia cause the same suffering to to animals as they do to humans. I'll leave it to your imagination to consider what they might do to them when they believe that they can't feel. But let's not be too critical of farmers. They're only doing what we pay them to do when we're not vegan. Before I went vegan, I wasn't consciously aware of animal sentience. It wasn't that I didn't know it and and I didn't understand it. It's just that it wasn't on my radar at all. It wasn't until I met individuals like Pip in this photograph that I began observing them and I saw how much of the same basic structure of life we share. That they can make decisions for themselves, that they have friends and families that they care for. I saw their capacity for pain, but I also saw their capacity for pleasure and that they treasured lives, their lives and it was when I first saw the rescued lambs at Eden jumping off their forefeet simultaneously just for the sheer joy of it that the words leg of lamb began to jar on my conscience. And it occurred to me that regardless of how we were treating them while they were alive, their lives don't belong to us. They have an interest in staying alive and eating them is a moral issue. Every animal bred for human use is destined to die in a slaughterhouse. They have the same feelings that we would have if we swapped places with them. A premonition of the end. They smell fear. They hear the pain of those killed before them. They see their killers and they try to escape. None of them go willingly to their deaths.
0: Over 7.5 million people tune into community radio stations around Australia each month. Just like you, they're tuning in to get diversity, alternatives, and to escape from the predictability of mainstream media. That's good morning from the Concrete Gang, and we're getting stuck into the Garden Show. Good afternoon, and welcome to Ruminations here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Great Voices, 3CR's classical vocal program. Good morning, and welcome to the Latin American Update program, 8:55 AM every day. 3CR brings you current affairs, local music, gig guides, activist information, and community views and voices. Make sure you join us. Call 9419
1: 8377.
0: You're listening to Freedom of Species, and part way through a talk presented by Sandra Higgins of Eden Farmed Animal Sanctuary, presented at this year's Irish Vegan Festival.
1: European legislation states that it's an offence to cause avoidable and unnecessary pain, distress, and suffering to an animal. That's not news to any of us. That's a belief that most of us hold very strongly. Surely, given that animal use is unnecessary, what you have just witnessed constitutes unnecessary pain and suffering. The problem is the word necessary. As long as we believe the myth that animal use is necessary, then we will continue to justify the atrocity that they endure at our hands in their billions, individual by individual, year after year. We're all very busy and few of us take time to research issues for ourselves. We've believed myths in the past we used to think the earth was flat and that we were at the centre of the universe. It's very easy to see how we remain vulnerable to living our lives according to myth instead of fact. Living our lives according to the truths that they tell us because they profit from keeping us ignorant. One of the most important ways that we can dispel the myth of animal use or the myth that animal use is necessary for humans, is to examine our history and see if we ever manage to live without exploiting them as we do today. We owe it to them to study their history prior to our domination of them. When we examine the timeline of evolution, we see that the animals we use today are much older species than humans'. Anthropological and archaeological evidence suggests that it's very likely that there was a time in our history when we lived in relative peace as one of billions of other life forms on this earth. The fact that our anatomy and physiology makes us poor hunters suggests that using other animals was opportunistic and that we were more gatherer than hunter. In fact, anatomically modern humans evolved about 150,000 years ago but we only began hunting about 50,000 years ago. And the fact that we may have hunted at one time doesn't equate with the necessity of using other animals today. We first domesticated them 10,000 years ago and that's a very short period of time in the history of our evolution. The most social mammals were captured and domesticated. Cows, pigs, Goats, sheep and horses, gentle animals. Capture and enslavement was violent and caused them pain and suffering. The very simple fact of being enslaved prevented them from meeting their basic needs so they lost their self-determination and their ability to live and evolve in conjunction with their natural environment. Their nature was stolen from them. Archaeological findings on their remains show evidence of the physical trauma that they suffered directly attributable to being used for their milk, eggs and flesh. Although domestication is romanticised by those who profit from other animals, it was anything but a benign partnership. It was the most violent act in our history, in the history of our evolution. It transformed wild, free, autonomous, self-sufficient, sentient beings into objects for human ownership. It has continued unabated into the nightmare of animal use today. It is systematic violence that violates the very sanctity of life. It's destructive of the minds and bodies of billions of individuals every year. Domestication objectifies, subordinates, oppresses and erodes the individual identity of billions of them every year. The Neolithic Revolution hailed as such a large step forward for humans is the point at which we became part of a tradition that views violence to others as normal, necessary, natural, nice and normal simply because they're not human. Animals who had lived on this earth for millions of years before us and survived so well without us have become to be regarded as mere objects their very existence recognised only in relation to their use to us. Domestication has legally entitled us to use them as if they are inanimate, unfeeling objects. Objectification of others is what erodes our natural sense of justice, whether those others are other humans or other animals. When we objectify others, we lose empathy for the fact that they feel the language we use to describe other animals illustrates the great degree to which we objectify them. How many of us call other animals it? As if they had no gender or personhood. The industry describes them as a crop that's harvested or processed at a factory. Sentient individuals with histories, memories, families, friends and feelings are measured in slaughterhouses as kill-out weight. Muscle tissue like legs that used to jump, play and walk. Livers that were used to filter toxins from their bodies. Tongues that were used to lick and love each other. Eggs that were hatched in the hope of rearing a family. And milk that was lactated from the loving breasts of mothers to feed their children become legs of lamb. Roast, patties, eggs, ice cream and cheese and all the other products and items that we find in supermarkets and call food. I frequently hear people state in defence of non veganism that we've lived this way for millions of years, but that's not a fact. We've lived this way for a very short period of time in the history of our evolution. And I often hear people boast of the supremacy of humans and the success of our evolutionary progress dating to our first domestication of other animals. We have nothing to boast about. Our behaviour is anything but successful and it's utterly destructive towards each other and towards them. Sentience is recognised in any country that has welfare legislation. It's recognised here in Northern Ireland under European legislation, under the European Treaty of Lisbon. But welfare legislation does little to protect the real interests of other animals and it's not what they need from us. Even when the highest welfare standards are adhered to, they are bred into this life as innocent, defenceless babies with the death sentence on their heads when they are still very young animals. We take their lives from them, brutally, for something we don't even need. If the legislation respected their sentience, then all use of other animals would be abolished. Instead, it attempts to regulate the atrocity of animal use, even though we know it's wrong. It should give us great cause for concern. When we hear our government ministers The people we trust to protect the most vulnerable among among us sanction the most gruesome harm because it profits some of us. Legislation on the protection of animals kept for the production of food, wool, skin, fur or other farming describes five basic conditions of welfare. Referred to as the five freedoms, it is at the outset an impossible piece of legislation even though it is the one that farmers continually use to defend their practice. I care about the welfare of the animals at Eden. It would be impossible and economically unfeasible for anyone profiting from them to adequately care for their needs. It takes us all day to ensure that we've looked after the needs of the hundred or so residents at Eden, and if someone is sick or dying, we barely have time to do anything else. It's not only an impossible piece of legislation, it's unjust because it makes no difference if someone is treated well, if their freedom is taken by virtue of being somebody else's property. But this is an important piece of legislation because it's the one that reassures people that the products they buy are somehow ethical that if they come from a particular country or carry a particular label or are endorsed by a particular organisation like the RSPCA or the Red Tractor, that they're somehow guaranteed to be harmless, ethical and humane. Yet every one of these regulations is violated in the process of transforming sentient beings into food. We deliberately mutilate their tails teeth, ears, beaks, horns and genitals without even giving anaesthetic or pain relief. In fact many painkillers are not even licensed for use in farmed animals. We deliberately breed their bodies that produce unnatural quantities of milk, flesh and eggs far in excess of what their wild natural bodies untouched by us would produce. Their bodies, therefore, become their prisons, regardless of how well they're treated. Chickens who are only six-week-old babies and still chirping already can't stand under the weight of their own bodies. Just stop for a minute and think about what that must feel like. Cows produce so much milk that their udders the equivalent of our breasts, become so swollen and engorged that they eventually can't even walk properly. We don't allow them to procreate naturally or even keep their own children. We oppress them and we fill their short lives with fear and distress before killing them in the most brutal way possible. So if this is the price they pay, why are we still supporting it? Why don't we connect with the living, feeling beings behind the products we use? How come someone like me, with the capacity to connect with farmed animals, wasn't vegan? One of the primary reasons that we don't face up to our ethical obligations to them is because we're sold myths by those who profit from them. We're sold the myth that other animals are essential for human health and that there's something acceptable, natural and humane about breeding them so that we can kill them. The American, Canadian and Australian Academies of Nutrition and Dietetics all state that a 100% plant or vegan diet is healthy and nutritionally adequate for all stages of life, from pregnancy to old age, and that it may provide health benefits in the prevention and treatment of certain diseases, many of the Western world diseases and causes of premature mortality. There's now a plant-based alternative for virtually every animal use. As long as people believe the myth that animal use is is necessary, then the myth of humane use will also persist. The notion that animal foods are necessary for human health is a myth that the industry thrives on portraying as science. Not only is animal use harmful to other animals, It's unnecessary for human well-being and in fact eating other animals is responsible for many of the preventable diseases that we and our loved ones and our children will suffer from. Dr. Michael Greger, whose website nutritionfacts.org I highly recommend, says that most of us are dying of diseases that can be prevented and in some cases even reversed by a whole foods plant diet. But you wouldn't believe the efforts that I have to go to, to get an ad like this passed through the censors. Why? Isn't it your right to know? Isn't it your child's right to know? Using other animals to meet our needs also affects biodiversity and destroys the planet that we all need for our survival. Most of us are not aware that animal agriculture contributes so much to the destruction of the environment and that it accounts for over 30% of Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions. The 2016 Oxford Martin study showed that a global switch to veganism could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by two-thirds, lead to healthcare-related savings and avoided climate change damages of £1.3 and could save 8 million lives by 2050. The closer people move to a non-violent vegan lifestyle, the more benefits we all, we all reap. Unfortunately, even with this knowledge, and even armed with experimental studies that show, for example, a, a group of people um, eating a plant diet, to see the effect it would have on their diabetes and and this group found a a plant diet very amenable. Even with these studies, many leading figures in, in the health and the environmental movement and the animal rights movement still call for reduced animal use instead of the complete abolition of animal use. But while a reduction in animal use might help our health or the environment, is it what animals need from us? Animals are not food. They're not clothing and they're not our property. It's very confusing for people to hear messages that suggest that vegetarianism or reducitarianism or flexitarianism are pathways to veganism. It's also very very confusing to be presented with a piecemeal version of animal rights, such as single-issue focus campaigns against fur or using animals in circuses or even animal flesh, instead of activism that addresses the concept of animal use. For many years, I thought I loved animals. I thought horse racing was atrocious. But because I invested my effort into these single issues piecemeal, I missed out the bigger picture, with the result that I stayed vegetarian for 20 years. It doesn't make any sense to boycott fur, but wear leather. It doesn't make any sense if we avoid the flesh of chickens, but eat their eggs. It doesn't make any sense to to protest against the use of geese and ducks for the production of foie gras, and go to sleep at night under a duvet made from the feathers plucked from their bodies. These suggestions all fail to address the root cause of animal use, which is speciesism, thinking that someone is an ingredient or a commodity and that it's acceptable to steal from them and take their lives from them because they're not one of us. When we reduce our use of other animals instead of being vegan, real lives are affected. In this photo are Emily, Charlotte and George at Eden. The idea that reduced animal use helps them means that they're still viewed as food rather than sentient beings with rights. It means that at least one of them will be killed. Which one of them will you choose for your dinner? If you had to look them in the eye and make a choice, wouldn't you make a vegan choice? If you're an animal rights activist, And you promote less animal use instead of the complete abolition of all animal use, then you too are faced with this choice. Which of them will you fail to advocate for? This is Claudia. She was rescued from the egg industry. She's dying at home as I speak. She values her life just as much as Emily, Charlotte and George value theirs. If we imagine that vegetarianism is the equivalent of veganism, some hen somewhere will experience reproductive cancer, infection, broken bones and prolapse so that the world can consume her eggs. In the last two weeks, We've had emergency vet visits for very young Mm -hmm. hens, rescued from a farm that specializes in extra large eggs, who have prolapsed. Just as any woman in this room will prolapse if she was to give birth every day. A hen like Claudia will be slaughtered at 18 months, when her lifespan as a wild, free animal In the jungles of Southeast Asia would have been at least 12 years. This is true whether she lives on a factory farm or a free-range or an organic farm. How is it that we're not aware of the price that they pay when we consume eggs? Let's look at how eggs are marketed. The Happy Egg Company sells organic eggs. You'll be familiar with them. I saw them in the shops here last night. The products are endorsed by organisations like the RSPCA, Compassion in World Farming and they carry high welfare labels such as Lion and Freedom Foods. This is how they are advertised. You would be forgiving, forgiven for imagining that the hens live in some kind of sanctuary. In fact the Happy Egg Company describes their home as five star accommodation. But undercover investigations show that the truth couldn't be further from what is portrayed. This is the inside of a happy egg farm. These are the hens that the Royal Society for the Protection of Animals assures us are treated humanely. This is the price they pay for something that we don't need, that's not good for us. And that doesn't belong to us. Among the great mass of hen bodies that people see on egg farms, there are unique individuals with wishes, personalities, and hopes just like any one of us. Joy was rescued from an enriched cage farm, and Alice was taken from a battery cage. I took them with my own hands. They both lost their lives. Due to complications from being bred into the egg industry, despite the care they got at a vegan sanctuary. The same fate awaits Missy and her friends, who arrived at Eden just a few months ago, victims of the Irish free range egg industry. We don't have the right to inflict this on anyone. When we speak about vegetarianism instead of veganism, we are responsible for beings like Missy, who came from a free-range farm that carried a glossy label and commanded a high price for her eggs. The reason I'm spending time speaking to you today about the egg, and I'll go on to talk about the dairy industries, is so that you can meet the victims of vegetarianism, so that you know them, so that you have feelings about them, There's so much focus among those of us interested in veganism on animal flesh. And this gives an incorrect impression of what veganism is. Veganism avoids harming all sentient life. It concerns the egg and dairy industries as much if not more than the meat industries. When you single out one form of animal use over animal use in general, you miss the most important part that they are sentient beings. They are individuals whose lives have value to them. They're not our property and we're not entitled to use them. Most people imagine that hens naturally lay eggs. I remember, even when I first went vegan, saying, all hens lay eggs anyway, don't they? What harm is it taking a few eggs if you have a sanctuary or a few hens in your back garden? But like other birds, like sparrows or blackbirds or crows, hens only lay one or two clutches a year for the purpose of hatching their young. The hens that we use in the egg industry have been selectively bred by us to maximise their ovulatory capacity so that they lay around 300 if not more eggs a year. At Eden we would say more. For a hen, this is the equivalent of a menstrual cycle and childbirth almost every day. It takes a huge toll on their bodies, and it does so whether they live in battery cages or free-range farms or organic farms. Some of the problems they experience include osteoporosis from continually uh, producing the the shell of the egg, which requires a a lot of calcium, respiratory illness, infections, lung, liver, crop and heart disease, and very high rates of cancer, as high as 100%, and they frequently prolapse. Every one of them had a brother. Males are useless to the egg industry. They're killed by gassing or live mincing at a day old. You need to ask yourself about the political leaders that we place our trust in. What kind of leader legislates for the live maceration of a day old chick? Cormac was rescued from the dairy industry within hours of his birth. Just an infant, he could barely stand. Like the billions of calves just like him, he was taken from his mother so we could have the milk that she produced for him. In the same way that there's no such thing as a humane egg, there's no such thing as humane milk, We become disconnected from the source of what we consume and we're enabled to do so by advertising. Dairy products have long been sold as natural, nice and necessary. Dairy boards all over the world spend millions in advertising every year. Campaigns have sold various myths to the public including the myth that calcium in dairy is essential to human health, particularly bone health. In 1951, Harvard nutritionist Mark Hegsted, who grew up on a dairy farm, published research that showed that the calcium levels of people living almost entirely on beans and rice were in the normal range. In the 1970s, Walter Millett, who leads the nutrition department at Harvard, did some very large epidemiological studies and he determined that dairy products offer no protective factor against bone fracture. In one study, women who drank two and a half glasses of milk a day had higher fracture rates than women who drank less. The industry flourishes by keeping people ignorant of its exploitative practices. But the truth couldn't be further from the myths they sell us in their adverts of the golden cows who thanked the farmers for milking them. The truth is one of utter grief, torment, pain, disrespect, exploitation and death. Like human mammals, a cow has an unshakable bond with her babies. But in the dairy industries, they're taken from her at birth so that humans can consume the milk that she lactates to feed them. Her sons will be killed at birth or soon after, for beef or veal. It's very difficult to convey to the public, through a campaign like Go Vegan World, just how other animals are objectified for the products we consider to be normal, acceptable and nice. It's difficult to convey to anyone the injustice of taking a baby from his or her mother. It's every parent's worst nightmare. It leaves mothers grief-stricken, and the lifelong effects that lack of attachment to a mother has on her calf will forever affect his or her ability to socialise and regulate their own emotions. Every female calf will be used by the dairy industry, just like her mother, after repeated pregnancies, during which she continues to lactate and be milked simultaneously, and after repeated loss of her children, the body and mind of a dairy cow is traumatised and broken. She is slaughtered at six years. Her natural lifespan is 25 years. Other animals need us to stop thinking about ourselves and to think about them. If you met someone like this, would you think that a piece of cheese was worth taking him from his mother? Would you think that an ice cream was worth his life? Ethical Motivation is what makes people who go vegan, stay vegan. If the grounds for going vegan were human health, then it would be acceptable for people to eat a plant diet but wear animal skin and hair. If the reason for going vegan is anything other than animal rights, then it would be understandable that we would promote less animal use or gradual elimination of animal use or go on some kind of a long windy spiritual journey that suited ourselves because in the same way that breaking a diet every now and then doesn't really count we could eat a piece of cheese thinking that it wouldn't really contribute all that much to climate change or to our cholesterol levels or to food security. But when the rationale is our moral obligation to others when we look at someone like Pixie in this photo and think of her as a living feeling being just like ourselves and we remember that Pixie and others like her are exploited, harmed and killed if we consume so much as a gram of eggs, dairy, fish or flesh or if we use a product that contains a minute part of their bodies or was tested on them or we wear clothes that were made from the body of that being. Then we begin to grasp what veganism is and what other animals need from us because that's the only way in which we recognize that to that feeling being life is as important as it is to us they may be different but they are equals until they're free their lives are in our hands and if so much as one of them is harmed it's one too many you have two choices you can be vegan or you can be violent But you can't be both.
0: Thanks for tuning in today to Freedom of Species. If you enjoyed the talk, please visit Sandra's websites, Eden Farmed Animal Sanctuary and Go Vegan World. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.